Wow, that guy means business. Just an amazing player. No, not him, the sports photographer behind him. Uh, what? He has a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where he earns 5% annual percentage yield, so he's scoring big on and off the field. You might even say he's the MVB. MVB? The most valuable business. Making your money work harder. That's how you business differently. Intuit QuickBooks. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes are in APY. APY can change at any time. Hi, I'm Andrea Slenzi. I'm a relationships journalist, most recently of the podcast YOY. And I'm your guest host this week on Vox Conversations. So according to my wedding website's ominous countdown clock, I'm getting married in 68 days. And as much as I love Dan, marrying him has me reflecting on my dating career up until now. And instead of thinking, how did I get so lucky? I can't get over what took so long. From the age of 25 until 35, I obsessively tried to find Dan. I went to every dog park making Are You My Husband eyes at all the guys there. I said yes to all the parties, all the workout classes, even when I wanted to say no. I moved across the country twice when I felt like I'd run out of people on my dating app. So even though I eventually met Dan, dating for a decade was not great for me. And I'm not alone. In the U.S. right now, there are more single people than ever. And for those single people who survived the pandemic year in a quarantine pod of one, we know that months without human touch took a toll. So heading into hot back summer, has the case for finding a partner suddenly become more urgent? And how do we not get in our own ways? Logan Yuri is the author of How to Not Die Alone, a book that uses behavioral science to reveal the hidden forces that fuel bad decision-making and get in the way of our dating lives. And though she wrote the book as an independent dating coach, she now works for the dating app Hinge, which, full disclosure, is how I met my fiancé. This is not an ad for Hinge. And just to call this out quickly, we are both cis women who pursue love and sex with men, so we're going to often talk from that perspective. But these apps are used by so many other people. Just most of the research right now is being done by the straight ones. Logan Yuri, welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Andrea. It's so fun to join you. I'm an old fan of you and your different podcasts, and I'm so happy to hear that you found love, and I'm excited to talk to you about all of that. So why not die alone? Yeah, if you look at the science, there is research that the quality of our relationships determines our overall health, happiness, and life satisfaction. And there's lots of evidence that people in happy relationships live longer. They have fewer health problems. I mean, some of this is romantic relationships. Some of this is just having deep relationships with your community, but having people who care about you and look out for you and say, hey, you know, you've been a little off lately. Maybe you should go to the doctor. All of that does have an important impact on people. And so, yes, there's definitely evidence that having deep, close connections, including a romantic partnership, is very good for your long-term health. Yes. And then you know, what I felt in my own dating career was I knew that there was this thing that I wanted and I knew it would be beneficial for me in terms of overall happiness out of life. Uh, I just had no path towards figuring out how to achieve it. I feel like if you want to get a job, there are a lot of conversations about, you know, interview etiquette, working on your resume. If you want to run a marathon, there are like a million apps you could download. But when it comes to dating, it feels like this very private thing? 
Yeah, I completely agree with you. I mean, that's one of the ways that I've really thought about the work that I'm doing is that love is natural. Love is organic. Love is something that you're born knowing how to do, but nobody is born knowing how to date. It's something that you have to learn. It requires practice. It requires relationship role models. And I think that people put a lot of pressure on themselves. Why am I not naturally good at this? And well, it's not a natural thing, right? For most of human history, people were not dating in the way that we think of now broadly in terms of I'm going to go out on my own, meet a stranger, choose to invest in them, they'll choose to invest in me, and then over time we commit to each other. I mean, even online dating started in 1994. The swiping apps have only existed for less than a decade. And so this is a very brand new experience in the span of human history. And so if people are struggling with it and feel like there's no roadmap, that's absolutely true. Do you think dating's harder than ever before? Do we have any research that says that? Yeah. My personal opinion is that in many ways, dating is harder than ever before. And so I'll start with a caveat that for certain groups known as thin markets, so groups where it's harder to find someone, so uh, people 50 plus, the LGBTQ plus community, dating apps have been great because all of a sudden there's an entire group where you know exactly who these people are and if they fit into your demographic. But in other ways, I think modern dating is really hard. And I'll, I'll share a few reasons why. So one is that we craft our own identities. We used to have identities handed down to us from our communities, right? So if you were a Jewish woman living in Poland, then you knew what you ate, what you wore, maybe who you would marry, how you spent your time, how you would raise your children, what you believed in, and a lot of your life was dictated for you. And so now we have the beauty of freedom, but because we can write our own stories, that also means that if we don't like the story, we only have ourselves to blame. And so there's this incredible amount of pressure by really having it all up to us, right? Our families mostly are not helping us choose our partner and we're really determining what our lives are like. What do we eat? What do we believe in? Where do we work? How do we spend our time? Plus, there's so many different ways to be in relationships, right? Am I monogamous? Am I non-monogamous? Do I even believe in romantic relationships, right? Plus, we have these sky-high expectations for relationships. We all of a sudden, over the last 50 years or so, and it's really increasing, we expect to get everything from one person. Our soulmate, our life partner has become the person from whom we get our desire, physical attraction, co-parenting, all of these things. And so there's really a lot of factors adding up that make modern dating challenging in terms of who to choose and everything is up to us. So if it doesn't go well, then we're the ones who we can blame. Yeah. And you can feel how quickly these norms are shifting, right? You can just ask your parents, how did you guys meet? You can ask your grandparents, how did you meet your partner? And already none of the stories line up. I can't use anyone in my immediate family. I can't even use a Gen X friend as a model for what I should be doing when I'm out there dating or was. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I think that's a good point. I mean, if you have friends who met somebody in college and you're describing what it's like to go on your 100th date from a dating app, they just can't really relate because it's an entire different thing. And so, of course, it's great that through dating apps, we can meet people beyond you know, Bobby and Belinda on our block, and we can meet more than just the people we work with. But also, of course, there's the idea of paradox of choice. And when you have an overwhelming amount of choice, you might feel like you can't make any choice at all and you experience decision paralysis, or you have doubts about whatever choice you do make. Right. Okay. Paradox of choice. Let's get into it. <laughs> 
There is this study that I think about a lot, which is about jam. Mm -hmm. And basically, some researchers took a supermarket and they said, what if we put out a display with 24 jams? How many will we sell? And then they did another display. Here's six jams. How many will we sell? And they found that when you had more choices, you sold less jam. When you had fewer choices, people were had an easier time picking out their jam. And I feel like I was compared to this jam example a lot when I was out there dating. People would say, oh, you're just, you know, you're looking for Mr. Perfect and you're you're looking for the grass is greener. Oh, he's not handsome enough for you. Why can't you just settle? If only you had fewer choices. But the thing is, the jam picks you back when you're dating. I don't know if you can always apply science of decision making or ideas like paradox of choice to dating. What do you think? Yeah, it's funny. I wasn't sure where you were taking that question. And what I was thinking is, you know, I'm very familiar with the JAM study and I interviewed the psychologist who ran that study originally. So yes, in that example, when there were 24 jams, more people tried the jams, but fewer people bought with the idea that I just don't know, am I a raspberry strawberry person or a strawberry rhubarb person? And I'm so overwhelmed that I'm going to choose no jams. But from the academic perspective, there's sort of a feeling of it's really hard to apply that to the choosing of a partner. But I also spoke to Barry Schwartz, who wrote the book Paradox of Choice and has done some of the most interesting work in this space. And I do think in general, the concept applies to dating because what ends up happening is that when you have so many choices, you may either feel like you can never make the best one or you feel like you're always weighing the pros and cons. And in weighing the cons, you kind of psych yourself out. And so no matter what you choose, you've really thought about all the negatives of that person and it's hard to ever really appreciate them. And so one of the things that has really impacted me from writing this book is the idea of rationalization and that actually our brains are very good at convincing us that we made the right decision. But what you have to do is commit. And so one of the examples I use in the book is if you buy a jacket and you can return it, you might take it home and say, do I like it? Do I have something similar? Does it fit well? And you go through all these different things in your head. But if you buy that jacket and it's final sale, when you come home, you're not really thinking too much about should I keep it or not? And you just commit to it and you convince yourself that you made the right decision. And so one thing that I've really been trying to do in my own life is just commit to something and say, okay, this is an event. Am I going to go to it? Yes. I'm sort of trying to not reply maybe to things, not even metaphorically say maybe to things in life and just say yes or no, because once you make a commitment, your brain goes into overdrive to convince you that it was the right decision. But what a lot of us do is we stay in this in-between mode where we're not really sure if we're doing the right thing or not. And I think swimming in that ambiguity, swimming in that anxiety is what makes a lot of people doubt themselves because they have these super long pro-con lists in their head. And no matter what they choose, they're very aware of the negatives of that choice. Do you think it's harder to commit to a decision because of how dating apps are designed? I think there's a statistic about how many people have opened a dating app while on a date. And I want to say I'm amongst the, you know, 20 something percent of people who've done that. Sometimes it's just so addictive to think like, well, I wonder what else is out there that you just can't. You're always like looking for a better coat. (laughs) It's hard. Yeah, I think that there can be a sense of always wanting to do the research. And I I like thinking about how, how people They can't buy a toothbrush without researching the best toothbrush. They can't go on a trip without looking on Yelp for every single meal. And so there's this sense of 
I can research my way to the right answer. And so while that may be true for Bluetooth headphones, it doesn't really work for dating because you can't date everyone. There's no way to have a complete set of information. And so for someone who's thinking, oh, I will find someone who's 5% more attractive or 5% more ambitious. And if I keep swiping, then the next person will be right around the corner. I think that that's just a mistake because what ends up happening is that you're always looking for the next best thing as opposed to my perspective on relationships, which is that you should find someone great, find someone whose strengths you love and whose weaknesses you can handle, and then you can actually build the relationship you want. And I hope that that idea is empowering to people because it's not necessarily just a research project of looking and looking and looking until you find the perfect person. It's finding somebody great and then building the relationship that you want to be in. Mm. I think as a culture, we really work against exactly what you're describing. You know, on Sex and the City, Carrie Bradshaw talked about the spark. You know, you got to feel spark. I didn't spark with him. I sparked with this person. I never spark. Seriously, what's the point of meeting someone like that if they're not available? And it's like, you might not spark on date number 25 of the year with another Brad who's telling you about his stupid job and you've already forgotten what it is. It's like you kind of give up on on that endeavor. You're set up to believe that something mystical is going to happen in your dating life. And I think there's a lot of resistance to the way you're talking about it very practically. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, sometimes when people hear about my background in behavioral science and I, I used to run a team called the Irrational Lab, they think, oh, you're trying to apply rationality to dating. You're trying to turn this magical moment of chemistry into something so scientific. But the truth is there is a science. There is a field called relationship science, which is the study of how love works. And in so many aspects of our lives, we want to understand nutrition science, exercise and finance and careers. Why would we not apply a scientific lens to this? Because it's such an important part of people's lives. And so what I try to do is not take the magic out of dating, but actually reframe the magic. The magic to me is two strangers meet, they choose each other, they build a life together, they commit to each other, they are making it work through ups and downs. 30 years into a relationship, they're still in love, having sex, finding things to talk about. To me, that's the magic. I'm not obsessed with the how we met, the meet cute, the spark, because who really cares what that first 30 minutes of knowing each other is. And so I think people are really focused on this rom-com fairy tale aspect of things. And sure, I've watched all of Sex in the City. I, I have had my Carrie Bradshaw days. But at the end of the day, when I really look at the research, I think this idea of the spark or instant chemistry is actually leading us astray. So let's take a quick break. But when we're back, who we're attracted to and why? It can feel a bit random, and I get the appeal of using behavioral science to try to make sense of it all, but how does someone actually do that? And can we apply this research to our dating lives day to day or swipe to swipe? That's after the break. Support for this podcast comes from Constant Contact. If you're a business owner, you already know that it's really, really hard to cut through the noise of everyday life. If you want to connect with your customers, you need to break through the noise. You need Constant Contact. 
Constant Contact is a marketing platform that makes it easy to reach new audiences, grow your customer list, and connect over email, text, social media, and more. Whether you're a marketing guru or just learning the ropes, Constant Contact offers writing assistance tools and automation features that make it simple to say the right thing at the right time. So get going and start growing your business today with a free trial at ConstantContact.com. Just go to ConstantContact.com right now. Constant Contact, helping the small stand tall. ConstantContact.com. What behavioral data sets are there out there? You know, what are you looking at when you're studying the science of love and relationships? Yeah, so my work combines two fields, the field of behavioral science, so the study of how we make decisions, and the field of relationship science. And so behavioral science is all about understanding why do we make the decisions that we make? And so we often act against our own best interests, right? And so we say we want to save for retirement, but then there's a sale at West Elm and we buy new curtains or we say we want to lose weight, but then we fill up our plates at the buffet. And so what are the cognitive biases that are clouding our behavior that are making it hard for us to fulfill our goals? And so what that means in dating is that somebody may say to me, oh, I really want to find someone and I'm super open-minded, but then when I introduce them to someone, they'll say, oh, I only date somebody who's over six feet tall or, oh, I didn't like the sound of his voice, so I'm not going to see him again. And so I really like applying the field of behavioral science to dating and relationships because we are so irrational, especially in matters of the heart. And then the field of relationship science is the academic study of attraction, sex, long-term romantic relationships, conflict, resolution, all of the things that go into partnerships. And so what I'm pulling from is research on how people are making decisions and how they're often making bad ones and how they have blind spots that prevent them from finding love. But then also, what do we know about what matters and doesn't for long-term relationship success? So using your knowledge of behavioral science, you've identified three distinct types of daters. Could we talk about them as ways of understanding just the ways we're leading ourselves astray when we're out there and dating? Yeah, absolutely. And so what happened to me is I've been working as a dating coach for a while. And I noticed that I had all these different types of clients from different parts of the country, different walks of life, but they seem to have the same dating blind spots, these patterns of behavior or ways of thinking that were holding them back from finding love. And so I categorize them into something called the three dating tendencies, and each one suffers from unrealistic expectations. And so the first one is the romanticizer, and the romanticizer has unrealistic expectations of relationships. And so this is you or your friend who thinks, I know exactly what he's going to look like. We're going to meet at the farmer's market. We're going to reach for the same tomato at the same time. And then we're going to live happily ever after. So the issue with the romanticizer is that they are not willing to put in work because they expect love to happen to them. And they also expect love to be effortless. And so when relationships hit that inevitable rough spot, they say, oh, well, this must not be my soulmate because if it was, it would be easier. The romanticizer is the reason why people always say you're going to meet your person when you least expect it. (laughs) So like, I feel like there was a good six month period where I was like, I'm just going to pretend not to expect it. Ooh, I'm not expecting anything. Oh, if it were to happen, it happens, but I'm not expecting it. 
does not work. We are not witches. <laughs> we can't just like pretend to be disinterested in meeting someone and then magically they'll appear. It takes work. Absolutely. Yeah. And it's so interesting. You know, I've been doing more dating coaching since the book came out. And just sometimes people are so smart and so self-aware and they're go-getters in all these elements of their lives, but they truly have this story in their head about this is how love is going to work, or this is what my person's going to look like. And they stay in these relationships with people who are not nice to them, who don't treat them well to the point of being emotionally abusive because they're like, this guy looks like what I thought my husband would look like. And so being so attached to these narratives, these narratives that come from social media, romantic comedies, Disney movies, whatever it is, we really let ourselves down because we expect things to go one way and we're not actually flexible about somebody showing up in a different package or in a different story than the one that we expected. I think anything could be a meet cute, right? It's just how good you are at turning what happens to you into a story. If the story is I made a spreadsheet about exactly what I was looking for and I strategically went on a date every Thursday at five o'clock at the exact bar for a year, that could be a romantic story, even though it's a scientific approach. Yes, I've definitely heard people who are really attached to the meet cute. And oftentimes how I interpret that or what I hear from them is, I just don't want to go on the dating apps. That's not romantic. That's not how I imagined meeting my person. Whereas from my perspective, and I, I said this earlier, who cares how you met, right? If you get into a long-term committed relationship, it's 0.00001% of the time that you're going to spend with that person. And so if you're so focused on the beginning of the relationship, I think that's often at risk of not understanding how important the rest of the relationship is. And the idea of these Disney movies ending with happily ever after, it's it's a fallacy, right? There's there's no such thing as just, and then they lived happily ever after. It's, well, then there were good times and then there were bad times and then there was infidelity and then this person lost their job and then this person's parents were sick. And so there's a lot of ups and downs and meeting somebody good is only the beginning of the hard part. There's, there's a lot of hard parts throughout. Okay. So tell us about the maximizer. Yeah. So the maximizer has unrealistic expectations of their partner. And this is something that I think our culture is really contributing to. I think there's far more maximizers than there ever were. And so the maximizer is out there saying, okay, I like my partner, but could I be 10% happier with somebody else? Or I wish I could take this element of my last girlfriend and apply it to this element of my current girlfriend and you know, come up with this Frankenstein new version of a partner. And so they're always wondering what else is out there. And the issue with the maximizer is that they want to understand all the possible people that they could date and then choose the best one. But that's just not possible. You can't date every single person in your city, let alone every single person in the world. And so at a certain point, you just have to choose someone and make it work. But I really do think our culture is creating this feeling of you can research your way to certainty. And that's just not something that's possible in love. Love is always a leap of faith. I can't tell you how many times I finished a date and then I Googled our signs to see if we were compatible. <laughs> yeah. And it's not because I believe in astrology. It's just because you want an answer. Are we going to work? And there's no place else to turn because you just have to go on another date. We just want to know, do our stars align? Are we meant to be? And that's exactly, I think, the same thing where people want to have 100% certainty before making a decision. But there's just no such thing as that. Everybody walking down the aisle, committing to somebody, they're really saying, you know, with the information I have right now, I'm making the best possible choice. So there's one more dating tendency you found, and that's my friend Renee, the hesitator. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah. So the hesitator is somebody who has unrealistic expectations of themselves. And so this is perhaps someone who says, Oh, I, I'm just not lovable yet. You know, I'll be ready to date when I lose 10 pounds, when I have a more impressive job, when I clean out my apartment, whatever it is. It always feels like one day I'll be ready to date, but that day isn't here yet. And so the issue with the hesitator is that no one's ever a hundred percent ready for anything. At some point, you just have to put yourself out there. And so for dating, there's two main reasons why hesitating is a problem. So one is dating is a skill and it's a skill that you can really only get better at practicing. And that means going on dates and getting your reps in. The other thing is that it takes a lot of time to figure out who you want to be with. And you can only figure that out by testing your hypotheses, right? Dating like a scientist saying, oh, I think I want somebody who's well-educated. Well, date someone who went to graduate school, date someone who you know, didn't graduate from high school, date different types of people and say, oh, did this actually matter or not? And so really it takes time to figure out who you are. And often people's idea of the type is wrong. And it's only when people give up on that idea that they actually find the person that they want to be with. Right. And if you wait until you feel like the most perfect version of yourself, I mean, does she exist? <laughs> right? Mm -hmm. I don't think we're wired to say, great, I'm done cooking. <laughs> uh, you also talk about this economic idea, the opportunity cost of decisions. Can you explain that idea to me? Sure. Yeah. Um, when we make a decision, it's not just that we are deciding between two things. It's that whatever choice you make, you don't get to do the other thing. The opportunity cost is something that economists refer to. And so it's the price you pay when you choose one thing over the other. And so let's say you're choosing between two mutually exclusive decisions, right? So it's like option A and option B. And so your opportunity cost is what you give up from option A if you choose option B and vice versa. And so let's say that you're deciding between continuing to work at your current job or going to grad school. It's not just that grad school is the cost of tuition. It's also how much you would make if you stayed at your job. That amount is part of the opportunity cost. And so for people who are hesitators, it's not just that they're not out there dating. It's that they're actually missing out on the opportunity cost of getting better at dating and figuring out what kind of person they want to be with. I always hear about opportunity costs in terms of concert tickets, but this makes way more sense. <laughs> Isn't the thing that they say that if you already bought the concert ticket and now you're deciding between going or not going because you've already made the purchasing decision, it's like... Yeah, so that's that's actually sunk cost fallacy. Okay, thank you. Yeah, so sunk cost fallacy is the idea that um, if you already bought the concert tickets, let's say they were $50, and then you decide you don't want to go, a lot of people will be like, oh, but it's $50, I have to go. But the idea is that whether or not you go, you've spent the $50. And so if what you really want to do is just have a night of drinking wine with your friends, then you can do that. You don't have to go to the concert just because you spent the $50 because either way you've spent the money. And so sunk cost fallacy is the idea of throwing good money after bad or doing something just because you've already invested time into it. And so I talk about sunk cost fallacy in terms of breakups because sometimes people will say, oh, I've been in this relationship for five years and I'm really unhappy and the last four out of five years have been bad, but I'm going to stay because I've already invested five years into it. And then that's sunk cost fallacy because does that person want to stick around? Do they want to put another five years into it? Or do they want to cut their losses and start over and find someone new? Wow. It's not like deciding to, you know, make your coat last another year. That's picking the person <laughs> that you're going to link up your whole every day with. Yeah. And it's, it's funny that you use the example of the coat because 
one of my favorite questions when I'm helping people decide if they want to break up is something I call the wardrobe test question, where I say to someone, if your partner were a piece of clothing in your closet, something that you own, what would they be? And it's kind of this weird silly Rorschach question, but it actually, because it's so abstract, people just say their gut reaction. And so I've gotten such interesting answers from, oh, my boyfriend is a wool sweater. He keeps me warm, but it's itchy and I want to take it off. Or my girlfriend is a scrubby old t-shirt that I would wear to the gym, but hope that nobody sees me in. And so when people hear this stuff coming out of their mouth, they're like, wow, I'm actually being honest with myself about how I feel. And sometimes it really helps them decide to end the relationship because, you know, hours of pro-con lists and talking to their therapist haven't really helped them get at the gut feeling of what's going on for them. With partners, you know, with most people who are monogamous and are going to try to choose one person, there's this feeling of, I really have to make the right choice. And the the pressure that we put on ourselves and the fact that we, you know, ideally, or for most people, ideally get to do it once, that amount of pressure just makes us feel like we have to get it right. Do you think we're more irrational with our dating decisions than with other kinds of decisions? I think that people are irrational in tons of ways. And that's why the field of behavioral science is so interesting, because the fact that we have these consistent, irrational frames of reference for decision making, you know, comes up in all areas of our lives. But it's interesting in dating in particular, because it's already sort of seen as something that has this magical realm to it. People talk about, you'll know it when you see it, or I'll know this is the right person when it happens to me. And so you, you talked about witches before. It's almost like there's this sense of a magic love potion, but we're making a decision that's going to impact us for a really long time. You, you're basically explaining that like we are predictably irrational, which is just like that should be an oxymoron, right? Yeah, yeah. And so that's the, I, I cannot uh, claim to have come up with that phrase. My mentor, Dan Ariely, his famous book is called Predictably Irrational. And that's why our group at Google was called The Irrational Lab. But I think if you just embrace that people are irrational, that if you are looking at you know, headphones that cost $199, they seem a lot cheaper than if they cost $200 because it starts with that one. Or that the order that we put things on a menu affects what we order because people often anchor on what's the most expensive item and then everything else looks cheaper compared to that. And so there's all these ways that the environment in which we're making our decision affects us. And so that's one thing that I really want to impart to people is that it's not just that if you met the love of your life at 7 a.m. in line with TSA at the airport that you just say, that's my girl. I know I, I, I recognize her and now we're going to fall madly in love. No, maybe you're under caffeinated. You haven't slept in two days. You don't feel confident. You don't feel chatty. You're not even going to speak to that person. And so what I really care about is people creating environments that lead to connection because I speak to dating coaching clients who say, oh, in 2019, I went on a hundred first dates and they're sort of bragging about it. And I'm like, that's a lot of dates. Why are none of them turning into second dates? And that's really where I dig in with them and saying, what mindset are you bringing to the date? What are you doing on these dates? How are you deciding who to go out with again? And I often feel like people have already met someone who would make a great long-term partner. They're just not setting themselves up for success, both in how they're dating and also how they're deciding who to keep dating. Dating apps are this necessary tool, right? It's become harder to date in the public sphere. I don't want to date in the workplace. Like I have to use a dating app. But 
this idea couldn't get out of my mind back when I was doing it, which was how do I actually believe that the apps want me to meet someone, right? If their shareholder meetings rely on their user base growing, how do we put our trust into the design of them? Yeah, I had the exact same question. So I come from a tech background and I understand the idea of user acquisition. And so about two years ago, I interviewed Justin McLeod, who's the CEO and founder of Hinge. And I said to him pretty aggressively, I don't believe in this idea of design to be deleted. It doesn't make any sense. It's very expensive to get users. And how are you creating an app with the idea of having these users leave. And he said to me, I promise you, in 2016, when we redid the app from being more similar to other swiping apps into something that was more intentional, no swiping, you have to comment on a specific aspect of somebody's profile. He said, our user growth has exploded. And now they're the number one app that's mentioned in the New York Times Vows section. They're the number one fastest growing app in different parts of the world. And that's because at the end of the day, if you're really looking for a relationship, what you want is for your friend to say, oh, Dan and I met on Hinge and now we're engaged, or my sister met her husband on Hinge. And so it's really about word of mouth and seeing that it works much more than turning it into some gamified experience where people are just addicted to using it. Okay, we're going to take one more short break. But when we come back, the pandemic changed our relationship to a lot of things. And in-person, face-to-face dating was certainly one of them. So now, as more of us are vaccinated, restaurants and bars are reopening, I'll ask Logan Yuri what she thinks about post-pandemic dating in this hot vac summer. That's after the break. So it's summer 2021. Do you have a sense of the current state of dating post-pandemic? Yeah, this is something that I've been thinking about a lot. I mean, what's really cool is I started at Hinge last March at the beginning of the pandemic. And so I've been tracking pandemic dating for a while. And it was interesting to see the different trends, right? So in the beginning, there was this explosion of video dating. People had never tried video dating before. And now Plenty of people were going on first dates through video chat and then talking on the phone and then eventually meeting up in person. We just did research that showed that 75% of Hinge users are looking to find a committed relationship, and that's even higher since the pandemic. And for those people, dating is now their number one priority over career, over family, and over friends. And I think that's because the pandemic was a moment where a lot of people looked inside themselves and said, what really matters? Like, who am I? What do I want? What kind of partnership do I want to be with? And now they're getting back into the world with a different attitude in which they're much more focused on finding a real relationship and not just sort of sauntering into this situationship, this undefined romantic relationship where they feel like they're wasting their time and they don't really know what they're getting out of it. And now we're at a stage where a lot of people are vaccinated and they're getting back out there. I'm recording this from New York right now, and I can tell you New York is is really hopping and it feels like people just cannot wait to get out there and meet each other. But there's been this narrative of the shock girl summer or waxed and vaxed. And we looked into this and what we found is that 
while people are excited about getting back out there and a lot of people want relationships, there's also this feeling of FODA, F-O-G-A, which is fear of dating again. And people just feel like their dating skills are rusty. Their social skills are rusty. They're thinking more about germs and what does it mean to kiss a stranger and what are we going to talk about and how do I update my profile photos when I haven't left my apartment in a year and I haven't taken a picture that wasn't a screenshot of a meme. And so there's really a huge feeling of people just really wanting to find someone, but also feeling nervous about getting back out there. That checks out for me because, you know, I think our hearts are muscles and we have to work them out. And a lot of people might feel like a new person now. So it's hard enough to tell someone who you are on a date and explain your story to them, but it's even harder if you're still explaining your new story to yourself. Oh, I love that. Yeah, I think that's so true. Like, what is your personal narrative and how has it changed? And a lot of people have experienced grief this year. A lot of people have experienced loss. I mean, you might get your identity from your job and then you lose your job or people have experienced financial hardship. And it's, it's hard to put yourself out there when you're not feeling confident. But one of the reasons why I really want to tell the story of Foda is that if you're feeling it, it's very likely that the person you're on a date with is feeling it too. And so you can just start from that place of authenticity. You can say like, I, you know, this is my first date since March of last year. And now not only are we more comfortable because we've stated our fears, but we're also starting from a point of connection. And now that we've let the air out of that awkwardness, we can just go on and talk about other things besides the pandemic. And so for anyone listening who is a hesitator and is somebody who has been waiting to date, I would say it's completely fine to experience that photo. But the best way to ease out of it is just to try to go on a few dates, let the other person know how you're feeling, and you will build up that muscle of social skills and small talk and first dates again. You know, when the pandemic first started, that television show Love is Blind was on television. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I watched it. Here, you will choose someone to marry. Hello. Nice to hear from you. Okay. Can't say see ya. Without ever seeing them. On the show, two people meet, but there's a wall between them. They can't see each other. They just have to communicate in their own little bubbles and fall in love with the sound of each other's voices. And it was really... I felt like we all, there could have been a parallel moment where maybe suddenly we were all more comfortable dating from our bedrooms instead of going out to bars, instead of doing it in real life. Did we see a surge of video dating that happened in the pandemic and why or why not? Yeah. So first of all, I loved Love is Wine and they definitely got lucky in terms of timing because it did feel like from those little pods speaking to, you know, a person in the other room who you couldn't see did feel Uh, quite appropriate for that moment. And I really liked how it helped people defy their own stereotypes and say, oh, maybe this is a person who at a bar I wouldn't immediately approach, but turns out that they make me happier than anyone I've dated before. And so I like any program that supports this idea of go against the type. At Hinge, we definitely saw a huge surge in video dating. People who had previously never gone on a video date. So over 50% of Hinge users have tried a video date, and many of them say that they'll continue to do it after the pandemic because it's this nice little in-between step before you meet up in person. And so it's like, all right, before I take a train for 40 minutes and spend $40 on cocktails and spend two hours, let's just do a quick video chat and see, you know, are we on the same page? Do we have something to talk about? Do we enjoy being in, in each other's companies? And so it's, it's you know, dating hasn't changed that much in the last few years. And so it's interesting to see this new step inserted in the process. Right. But it's also so new. 
Well, video dating is an old idea from the 80s. There used to be yeah. those like video dating reels that would go around. Oh, yeah. from Sa- I remember the Saved by the Bell episode about this. Hello, my name is Lisa Turtle. I'm the founder of the fashion team and the shopping squad. My hobbies include dating, guys, and dating guys. Lisa, I bet every guy will want to date her when they see this. <laughs> but at the same time, it feels like video dating. I'm comfortable going to a video wedding, a video funeral. I went to a video bris, but <laughs> dating? Yeah. I mean, look, a lot of people tried video dating because basically one of the fascinating things that happened during the pandemic is that people showed us that they weren't willing to take a year off from finding love. And in fact, some people became even more focused on it. And so when video dating or using dating apps was the only safe way to meet with people and connect with them, then people were resilient and creative and came up with ways of doing it. And all these online games popped up and there's that app where you can watch Netflix together and people were going on FaceTime dates and showing each other tours of their house and things in their fridge. And so it's really been interesting to see how creative people got and they weren't just willing to put their love lives on hold for a year. And I personally think video dating could be really great for women. You know, it maximizes your time. It keeps you safe. You get to decide if you're going to meet him. I think you can read a lot about a person based on, I don't know, their living room. If you can talk for five minutes and hold eye contact, these are important things that you don't find out on a dating app. Yeah. You know, Andrew, it's so interesting because one of my favorite chapters from the book, one that's really taken off, is called Fuck the Spark. And we can go into it more, but basically the spark has become my nemesis. It's become this idea that, you know, you you need to feel instant chemistry. You need to feel fireworks. You need to feel this immediate sensation that we've known each other for our whole lives. And if not, then you're not the person for me. And so I like video dating as a strategy and as a way to feel safe and comfortable and to kind of gut check or vibe check before you meet up. But I also do worry about people over-optimizing for the spark when my philosophy is that it's much more about the slow burn, the person who might not be initially the most charming or the most attractive, but over time, you really get to like them more and more. And in fact, in many ways, slow burns make the best long-term partners. Can I ask how you met your husband? Was it a slow burn? Sure. Yeah, I I definitely think my husband is the slow burn. So we originally met in college and we know that because he wrote on my Facebook wall. That was a big thing back in the day. And then I actually coincidentally saw him on Tinder about seven years later. And I was like, "Eh, he's wearing a tank top and a backwards hat. He kind of looks like a bro. I just kind of made an immediate snap judgment and swiped left on him. And then we were both working at Google at the time. And there was a lunch that I hosted for alumni from our college who worked at Google. And at the lunch, I was like, oh, I'm trying to learn this statistics programming language called R. And he said, I just dropped out of a PhD program where I wrote R every day. And so he volunteered to tutor me. But even then- Oh, you flirts, R. I know, I know. (laughs) We say R is our love language. Ha, ha, ha. And yeah, even then, you know, it took a year of us hanging out before I- kind of tried to convert it from friend to more than friend because I had met this guy who I was chasing after. And, you know, I ended up seeing a dating coach myself. I had my own journey of kind of being like, what are my bad patterns? Why do I keep seeking people who aren't interested in me just for the chase? And actually had to realize what I want is somebody who chooses me, not somebody who I have to convince to be with me. Do you think you would have seen that without a dating coach? 
I'm not sure. I mean, I think that attachment theory is just such a helpful framework for a lot of people. And so for anyone listening, there's a great book called Attached about it. And basically, it's this idea that some people are anxiously attached and they're very focused on the chase and they want what they can't have and their vision of love is the pursuit. Then there's some people who are avoiding attached and their vision of love is that somebody's going to smother them and they're going to lose their independence. And so a lot of times anxiously attached and avoiding attached people date each other and they are reinforcing each other's worst definitions of what love is. And it's not until one of those people actually dates somebody who's securely attached who makes them understand that it's about intimacy and independence and that you are choosing each other and you also have independence. And it's really in that moment of dating somebody secure and reframing them from, oh, this person is boring to, oh, this person is secure, that that's really where the change comes from. And so I'd hope that I would have reached that point at some stage, but I feel really lucky that I was able to go to an expert and have somebody say, how do you want this person to make you feel? And I said, desired, appreciated, intelligent, beautiful. And then it's like, how does this guy that you're chasing make you feel? depressed, anxious, nervous, insecure. And it's like, okay, then then why are you pursuing somebody who makes you feel that way? And so just sometimes having somebody point out the fact that you are being irrational and there's a different choice you can make is what you need to start making different decisions in the future. Can you tell me more about Fuck the Spark? Yeah, absolutely. I would love to. So the origin of this is that In my work as a dating coach, people would say to me, you know, a guy would say to me, all right, I met up with him. He was great. We had a good conversation. Uh, We have a lot in common, but I'm just not going to see him again. And I would say, what are you talking about? It sounds like a perfect date. And he would say, I just didn't feel the spark. And so I began to understand that the spark has become this catch-all term for this immediate chemistry that we expect to feel on dates. And of course, I felt the spark before. And of course, it's this peak experience. But people put way too much emphasis on it when it comes to long-term dating. And so the three myths of the spark are one, that the spark can't grow over time. And that's absolutely not true. A lot of people end up marrying somebody from work or marrying somebody from their friend group because the spark can definitely grow over time. There's something called the mere exposure effect. The more that we see something, often the more that we like it. And so the spark is definitely something that can develop over time. The second myth is if you feel the spark, it must be a good thing. That's absolutely not true. Sometimes certain people are just very sparky. They might be super attractive or very charming. Actually, there's research showing that they might just be very narcissistic. They might be love bombing you because they want to feel the affirmation of you falling for them, but they're actually not that interested in you. And so what you experience as the dynamic between the two of you is actually a feeling that they give many people. And so in some ways, you should be suspicious of the spark. And then the third myth is that If you have the spark, then the relationship is viable. And that's just not true. A lot of now divorced couples once had the spark and they stay together and they get married because of this romantic how we met story. But the spark can only get you so far. The spark fades. And so the antidote to this is the slow burn. The person who gets better over time, who might take a few dates to warm up, but they are loyal, they're kind, they're interesting, they're smart, they're committed to you. And so I really try to train people to look for the slow burn and understand that many of the happiest couples I know, they didn't have the first date, but something happened where their mom or their best friend said, hey, give that person a chance. And in getting to know them over time, they realize, oh, this is actually the person in the world who makes me happier than anyone has ever made me before. 
you know, I really, you can date all you want. You could read every dating strategy in the world. You could watch The Bachelorette for a million seasons. And sometimes you can say something that has zero game at all. And it's just going to help you out because you're being honest and direct about who you are and where you're coming from. I want to say like maybe my second date with Dan, Mm -hmm. I was like, I got to lay out this timeline for you. Here's how old I am. (laughs) Like if you're serious about this, you need to let me know in the next couple months. Like there was no front here. And sometimes I think that can be the most romantic thing. Absolutely. Yeah. You know, we just completed this really interesting research project at Hinge where we ran this experiment where we had different kind of fake profiles that we created and people would say what they were looking for. And some people would say, I'm looking for somebody smart and funny or I'm looking for somebody kind. And then some of them would say, I'm looking for a long-term committed relationship. And then kind of in this experimental setting, so people knew that they were participating in an experiment, people would look at these profiles and say how likely they were to message that person. And so what we found is that somebody who was looking for a relationship was 17% more likely to reach out to somebody who was upfront about what they wanted. And somebody who wasn't looking for a relationship was 11% less likely to reach out to that person who'd said that they were looking for a relationship. And so what that means is that it's better to be upfront from the beginning about what you want. Because even if you get fewer messages, you're turning the right people on and turning the wrong people off. And so I think that there's just a really universal truth there, which is that sometimes we're afraid to be upfront about who we are and what we're looking for, but it really just saves you time because if somebody's not picking up what you're putting down, wouldn't you rather know that from the beginning instead of trying to to play a game and then hope that just in the end it works out? So 10 years from now, what do you think dating's gonna look like on your 11-year wedding anniversary? Oh, yeah, that's an interesting question. I mean, definitely think that video dating is here to stay and we'll probably see more of that and more integrations with video and audio, probably more ways for people to be in long distance relationships. You know, one thing I've been hearing about a lot that I'm just kind of working through right now is a lot of people that I work with are saying, I just don't feel attracted to anyone. I'm just not feeling attracted. And I think that there's sort of this dearth of sexuality and sort of personal erotic energy where we're looking at a screen all day, we're on our phone, we're on our computer, we're on Zoom. And it's really hard to feel sexual if you don't even have a relationship with your body and you're not spending any time alone. And so one thing I'm really interested in is how are we going to inject more erotic energy, sexuality, flirtation, and play back into dating? Because if nobody's really feeling that, then it doesn't matter how many dates you go on, you won't really be interested in sleeping with that person or connecting with them. And so how can we invest in fantasy, imagination, and erotic energy so that actually it's easier to connect with people and we're not just kind of in this turned off digital mental space? Uh, for real, I you know, the part of your book where you talked about how to make a date not like a job interview mm-hmm. really resonated because, mm-hmm. you know, at a certain point in my dating career, it it was a job interview. <laughs> you know, yeah. I had a lot of really practical things I was looking for in a partner that I wanted to get into and I wanted to maximize my time. You know, it's so hard. Like people who come to me and they're like, I'm 36. I'm ready to find someone. I've, I've had my fun. And I understand that they're taking themselves and dating seriously. And that's absolutely correct. But just because dating requires work doesn't mean that you need to show up the way that you show up at work. And so if you feel like you're going on a date and you have a checklist and you're interviewing someone for the role of your spouse, that's just going to turn yourself off and it's going to turn the other person off. And people I know, and some of them are very attractive. Some of them are not. It's not 
not really about looks. The people I know who are most successful with dating, they bring a sense of levity, fun, play to their dates, right? They go on a date and they're willing to have drinks turn into a walk in the park. And then they find themselves babysitting a stranger's dog for 10 minutes. And they're having these different adventures. People who say, I have 15 minutes to meet you in between these two meetings. No, of course, you're not going to feel that connection with someone. And so, yes, dating requires work. But if you're interviewing somebody, if you're in the evaluator mode, that doesn't lead to connection. What leads to connection is creating a sense of play and really just sitting there and being with the person and saying to yourself, how do I feel around you as opposed to, are you good enough for me? And do you check off all the boxes? Mm, Hold the hug just a little longer. (laughs) Smell them. (laughs) Yeah. Ask if they want to dance. I don't know. Seems hard. So glad it's maybe hopefully over. Okay, so Logan, if you were a single person right now heading into your hot facts summer with a Mm -hmm. bad case of FODA, what would you be doing right now? Oh, I love this question. I would be refreshing my profile, uh, finding pictures that are accurate but flattering, writing some new answers to my prompt, just, you know, new year, new you, new profile. I would be not rushing myself and understanding that it takes time to get back into it. You're going to feel awkward on those first few dates. You might say the wrong thing. The person might cancel. We're all just doing our best to kind of get out of this collective trauma that we've all been going through. And then saying, I'm going to reward myself for the effort I'm putting in and not punish myself if I don't get the outcome that I want. And really understanding that dating is a process and there's going to be some high highs and low lows. But as long as I keep doing the right things, which are giving people a chance, putting myself out there, being honest and vulnerable about who I am and what I want, eventually I'm going to find someone who's looking for the same things I am. There is no wire cutter. Here's your husband. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I know. Wire cutter is ruining all of us. We tested to 20 it. different partners for you and <laughs> using our extensive research. We found that's Chad. So, that's so funny. Yeah, people would definitely sign up for that. Thank you so much for coming on the show, Logan. Yeah, Andrea, it was so much fun. Thank you for thinking of me. And, you know, congratulations on Dan. It's been an honor to hear your dating journey and motherhood journey and all those different journeys you've been on over the last few years. So I personally, as a as a fan, feel very satisfied and happy to hear that you found someone great. This week's episode of Vox Conversations was produced by Eric Janikis. Our editor is Amy Drazdowska. Paul Monsi mixed and mastered this episode. Our theme music was dreamed up by the mysterious Breakmaster Cylinder. And Liz Kelly Nelson is the VP of audio at Vox. If you like the show, let us know. Room for improvement, we want to hear that too. We're curious to know what you think, what you want more of, and what we can improve. And hey, if you have future ideas for guests, guest hosts, or topics, send us your thoughts at voxconversations at vox.com. And if you did like this episode, share it with your friends, rate and review, and come back next week for a brand new episode.